Hello, and welcome to the Oxford Comment. I'm Michelle, and I am here with my lovely colleague, Justina. Hello, everyone. So, a few months ago, a group of us here at Oxford decided to read Matthew Galloway's new novel, The Metropolis Case, published by Crown this past December. Now, the book has received rave reviews, including a pretty extraordinary endorsement from The New York Times. Justina, do you want to read? It's to the credit of Matthew Galloway's enchanting, often funny first novel that it doesn't require a corresponding degree of obsession from readers, but may leave them similarly transported. The book is so well written, there's hardly a lazy sentence here. That was beautiful. And well-deserved, Maddie G. <laughs> now, all of us actually know Matt um, as a law editor here at Oxford, and we thought it would be fun to invite him to discuss the book with us, and he kindly agreed. So today, the Oxford Comet invites you to sit in on our book club with, as Justina just called him, Maddie G. Now, even if you haven't read the novel, I think you'll find the talk pretty interesting as Matt discusses his personal experiences in writing the book, and he shares some of his opinions on literature today, and as well as some advice for anyone out there who is trying to write their own novel. And for those of you who have read the book, uh, Matt does discuss the infamous incest scene. Indeed, he does. So um, I guess we will get started. For those of you who haven't read, I think what you mainly need to know is that the book follows four different characters across space and time from 19th century Paris to a post 9-11 New York. And the thread tying these people together is music. And Three of the main characters are opera singers, and the story draws from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. So you might think this is just a book uh, about opera, but really the themes throughout the novel are really quite universal. And there's My Bloody Valentine. Um, we'll take a second to introduce ourselves and get going. I'm Michelle. I'm Grace. Hi, I'm also Michelle. I'm Matt. And I'm Justina. All right, so who wants to go first? <laughs> Did you guys actually all finish it? Yes. Honestly? Yes. Yeah, okay. Here's a, here's a question. Did you guys know much about opera going into it? Um, I was going to say, yeah, you totally can read this book not knowing anything about opera and love it. And I think that it's a very difficult thing to write about music. And you did such a nice job with that. And one thing that really struck me was near the end of the book, the main character or one of the main characters is um, this man named Martin. And Grace and I actually talked. I think he was actually my favorite. Um, but she's a Maria fan. <laughs> um, we'll get to that later. But um, anyways, there's a scene where he's at a My Bloody Valentine concert. And interestingly, I, I watched Lost in Translation this past weekend for the oh, first yeah. time. And they're the... My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But um, so it's weird how like different thing, cultural things that you're digesting come together. Yeah. It's like very serendipitous sometimes and weird like yeah. that. But um, anyways... At, he's at a concert, and he was saying how his this point in his life will always be defined by this moment at this My Bloody Valentine concert. And you're basically saying how we can kind of map our lives in terms of music and how different songs in our minds and our memories mark certain moments or huge realizations um, we've had. And this concert kind of marked the time where Martin 
fully accepted his homosexuality. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and maybe even to turn it on you, some of the songs that have marked your own autobiography. Sorry, that was yeah, so oh, yeah. loaded. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's that's totally true and something I wanted to really bring out in the book, the idea that music is not only a way to mark time, but music can also be a way to help us sort of process um, things that are happening to us. And it's almost like uh, you know, when things happen to us, like sometimes we don't even really understand what it means to us emotionally until, I don't know, maybe three weeks later or something or three years later, we'll hear a song and find ourselves like in tears or laughing. And we realize that the music opened up these emotions in us that we maybe weren't in a position to acknowledge at the time the actual event happened. And for me, you know, what I wanted to do in terms of music is sort of erase the distinction between like high art and opera and and pop music, you know, like underground indie rock, like stuff that I grew up living, uh, listening to, because I think, you know, it all music can serve that function. So so that was a a really long winded response. But does does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Okay, question. Um, How did you know how to write about opera? I feel like a lot of music writing is very technical and talking about like measures and stuff that totally makes no sense to me whatsoever because I never studied music. And um, as someone who studied rock, but not necessarily opera as thoroughly, how did you know how to go about that? I actually did a lot of research, believe it or not. It's kind of inconceivable to us now, I think, but 40 or 50 years ago, Maria Callas was like, the Lady Gaga, you know, it was literally like she took a step and the media covered her. You know, she was on the cover of Time magazine. If she got into a fight with the general manager at the Met, which did happen, it was like front page New York Times. And she was not the only one, you know, and it goes back in time. So there, as a result, there are all of these amazing books about opera singers. And I just, I tried to read as many as I could and just try to, you know, get a sense of what it was like or what it is like to be a singer. Um, Okay, I have a question. The the way that you feel about, you know, music touching you in a way and, and, you know, getting into, getting you into an an emotional place, um, I think a lot of people feel that way about writing and novels as well. So uh, I'm curious as to, you know, who, who influenced you most when you were thinking about how you were going to stylize the novel, you know, how you were going to set it up and, and make it the form that it is, which it's, you know, it's, it's little snippets of, of everyone's life one after the other, which keeps it really interesting. But I just wondered how you came to, to that conclusion and, and the style of writing. I think there is a tendency in a lot of modern writing to always say, well, if you can say it shorter and quicker and more simply, do it. Whereas I was like going back and reading these old books and being like, they're so awesome. And I also think there's a homophobic element to the prejudice against ornate or in lavish prose. Because if you look at Henry James or Marcel Proust and a lot of these old masters, you know, they were, they were gay. And as a result, I think 
in the in the modern era, everyone's like, I mean, you can even read like Stephen King has a thing against adverbs, you know, and it's like, give me a break, you know, adverbs, you're really against adverbs. <laughs> and I was when I went into this book, I was like, you know what, I like lavish prose, I'm gay, I'm going to use <laughs> I'm going to use big words if I like them. I'm going to I'm going to use a lot of m dashes. I'm going to use semicolons. That's just the way it is. So does that make sense at all? I mean, I know that's sort of like a a crazy theory, but and I feel like it's funny because I felt like it was lavish without being lavish. If that makes any sense. Your sentences Outwardly, they might seem simple, but like if you go back and read them, there's they're actually very loaded and very heavy. Like you could easily miss something. So I found myself when I was reading, reading and then going back, reading, going back. Sometimes reading some sentences, you know, three, four times. And I guess it also depends on the type of reader you are. But right. you and I think you took a long time on this novel, like years. And right. I'm wondering just what your thoughts are on that and the state of literature and publishing in general. Um. I will say, you know, I was very fortunate in terms of having a a great agent who, you know, really sort of grasped, I think, everything I was trying to do, in some cases even before I did. And he is also a, a writer who clearly isn't afraid to be very, you know, not ornate, but, you know, use complicated sentences and in poetic imagery. And I think the editor, I was also very fortunate in having an editor who also really enjoyed the prose, otherwise she wouldn't have bought the book. Um, One thing I will give her credit for is she did, I think, smooth it out in, in ways that I think made it a bit more accessible. Because, you know, that is a consideration in terms of, you know, I think every writer wants to reach as wide an audience as possible. So in a way, I think I I really had an ideal publishing experience in terms of publishing generally. I mean, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I mean... there are a lot of great books that get published, and there is a lot of crap, I think. And, and I'm just, I'm not sure if that's ever been any different, you know, it, whether it's worse now or, I don't know, it, it, it's certainly a mystery to me. It's amazing how subjective reading is, you know, that's been a real eye-opener for me. You know, there, like, as I was saying before, some people love the book, some people hate it, and the reasons they hate it are you know, all over the map. But I think what's important as sort of the takeaway is really when, if you're interested in writing, write what you want. You know, don't listen to anyone else. Like, do what you want and then work to find the person or the people who are going to sort of understand your vision and get it out there. And then once it's out there, you you can just all all you can do is shrug and just be like oh my god you know <laughs> but that that's sort of that that's the long answer anyone else jay-z hello uh just getting back to the book i was wondering because for me it felt like the cities were kind of like the supporting characters in the book and um i guess the one i was most intrigued by actually was your Uh, depiction of Pittsburgh Uh and since it's a place you are from 
I was just wondering, um, it seemed to be very, uh, kind of depicted as a very stifling place, and I was wondering how personal that was for you. I think it was personal. Um, it's funny because there was just a review in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that was very, you know, it was a very nice review, and the, and the reviewer said I had a chip on my shoulder about Pittsburgh as her only sort of minor quibble. And she's a professor at CMU, so she lives in Pittsburgh. And she said something to the effect of, you know, the author seems to think that everyone has to leave Pittsburgh in order to achieve his or her dream. And in a way, I, I sort of think that was true, you know, in the, especially in the 1970s when I was growing up. I mean, I think it's probably different now, but Pittsburgh at the time, especially the suburban part of Pittsburgh where I grew up, was, I think in many respects, a very stifling place. It was like all sports, all the time. My mother definitely tried to interest me in, you know, cultural things, but I was just like having no part of it. And, you know, part of that was me, of course. But I think there is something about growing up in small town America that can be very stifling. And at the same time, we're all aware of New York City or Los Angeles or maybe Chicago sort of hovering as this kind of beacon of hope. Like, if we could only get there, then maybe we might meet some like-minded people. Something in me was like, you better get there <laughs> some, somehow or another. And I don't think I, I could have written this book had I stayed in Pittsburgh. So, you know, I, I love Pittsburgh now and, and love going back. I think there's tons of great stuff going on in Pittsburgh. It's a beautiful city. But I do think that there is like an element of like a psychological element that we all want to escape our childhoods and in Pittsburgh sort of served that function in the book. It could have really been anywhere. It was just I knew Pittsburgh, so that's why I picked that. There is like a, a post 9-11 canon right right now and um, we're like 10 years out and I wouldn't call your book a 9-11 book, but you do talk about it. It is right. an important point in the book and I was wondering if you could just talk about oh, that sure. a little bit. Um, I wanted 9-11 I wanted to present it because I, I don't think it's possible to write about New York City or have the city as a character, as, as um, we were talking about earlier, without referencing 9-11. And I wanted to do it in a way that was purely emotional, like not deal with like the political repercussions, which you know we're all very well versed in. And, but I thought <clears throat> it would be a good way for the character in question to access some of his own memories. And I wanted to draw an analogy, too, between, you know, HIV AIDS as sort of in 9-11, which I don't know if it's been done before or not, but to me it seems like kind of an obvious reference to make. And, you know, I, I just, I feel like as a culture, we haven't even begun to really discuss what AIDS what happened with AIDS in, in 
in terms of our country as a whole. And I think we're still like in big time denial. And I wanted to, I didn't really get into that too much in the book, but I did want to at least draw the connection between 9-11 and HIV in the, in his, in, in the character in question, like his own sort of 9-11, because he's, he's mixing up memories of HIV and also getting into the memories of his, of his parents' um, death. So I, I wanted to, to pre- again present it as just like a very an emotional way to reflect on his his life hello again i was just wondering and i tried to refrain from reading any reviews about the book because i wanted to decide for myself but i actually read the new york times because you know so exciting <laughs> and i when i was reading the new york times i stumbled on i think it was la times did the was it Culture Watch, and they, um, which I thought was really interesting, compared your book to The Hours, and with the four characters, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they're discovering their sexuality, or at least Martin and Lucien, Lucien, Um, and I was wondering how you took that, and I don't think it was necessarily a criticism, just a comparison, but I wanted to ask you about it. I mean... I think I think Michael Cunningham is an incredible writer and The Hours is a an amazing book and and deserves to be read by everyone. I think it it probably in terms of the time jumping thing and the multiple characters it probably influenced me unconsciously more than consciously. I wasn't like, "Oh, I want to write a new Hours." If anything, I think I was more under the spell of Robert Musil, who is an Austrian writer. I don't know if you guys have ever read him. Um, He wrote this book called The Man Without Qualities, which took him about 15 years to write. And it's basically like an ensemble of characters. And I think that was what I was, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book that's influenced by Musil. But... Again, it was probably like, oh, actually, I'm writing something that's more like the hours. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's how things work, right? I mean, you think you're influenced by one thing, and then in reality, you're influenced by something else. I mean, bottom line is, I, I, I think Michael Cunningham's amazing, and he certainly is, you know, a hero in terms of, you know, being a, a, a an openly gay writer who has achieved a lot of you know, mainstream success. Um, And I read The Hours so long ago, but I feel like one of the themes was that love transcends sexuality. And um, in your book, you seem to be saying that sexuality is not a box. It's more of a spectrum because a lot of the gay characters do have sex um, with members of the opposite sex. And it seems very charged and it doesn't seem like it doesn't mean anything. And granted, two of the characters are brother and sister. Um, But, yeah, I just noticed that the entire book seems to be saying that, like, sexuality is not a box. It's not so cut and dry. I think I did. uh, That's a great great way to phrase it. I mean, my own philosophy is that I I sort of hate the word bisexual. I tend to think that everyone is bisexual, even though I hate the term, probably because I think it is kind of like a box 
and you know it has so many sort of weird connotations these days like oh I'm bisexual and it means that everyone just assumes that you are going to act certain ways and I don't know I just I, I have a hard time using almost any term too seriously whether it's you know even homosexual or gay or you know I tend to I tend to refer to gay people as uh, you know non-heterosexual just sort of to like use it a little bit and and then straight people as non-homosexual you know just just kind of you know make fun of the term even as you acknowledge it so yeah there is a lot of bisexuality in the book but nobody I think would ever label themselves bisexual and then in terms of the um you know, we were going to talk about this a little bit before the, you know, the famous incest scene, which to me is, I mean, I, I shouldn't have, I, I shouldn't be so surprised that it, you know, has been controversial because it's incest. It comes from, there's a, a Wagner opera, Val- Valkyrie, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but in the opening act of Valkyrie, there is a brother and a sister who, after being apart for many many years find each other and in a way it's even more explicit because they understand that they're brother and sister and the act ends with them falling into each other's arms and having sex Um, and in fact he impregnates her and has and she later has a has his child who is Siegfried who then goes on to destroy the world essential or the world of the gods and i just i wanted to play with the sort of the psychological elements of incest and if you read carl jung you learn that you know almost every society going back to the beginning of time has always had incest myths and according to a Jungian psychological interpretation, it basically just represents the merging of the masculine and the feminine. So even though these cultures have incest ma- myths, incest as a reality has always been taboo. Like no culture in the history of the world has ever been like, oh, brothers and sisters should be, you know, having sexual relations for obvious reasons. You know, I, I mean, it's just people have never done it because it's, you know, it makes them sick and, or, you know, like the, the kings and queens of Europe or whatever, they would just become weak and, and die off. Um, so I just wanted to basically reference the psychological elements. And I think if people are reading it, reading the book on a very literal level, I can understand why it would be upsetting. But it's not meant to be a book that's read on a very literal level. Um, It's meant to have symbolism. And again, you know, that's just something I enjoy in books that I read. So I wanted to infuse it with as much, um, you know, allusions to psychology and philosophy and mythology as I could. And that's why I had Martin and Maria literally coming together in that scene, almost as if they're becoming like one person you know, which is why they're also, their names are almost the same, too. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Does that make sense? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Anything I, else? I, 
Um, so Michelle mentioned earlier that we have been talking about our favorite characters, and yeah. Michelle's favorite character is Martin. Um, mine is Maria, just because I think she's so weird. I love it. Um, <laughs> I was wondering if you had a favorite character, or a character you felt the most affinity towards as you were writing it, or after. Um, I mean, Maria is a lot of fun because I think a lot of gay men I tend to idolize sort of strong women and I made her a diva you know in a way like someone who doesn't take a lot of shit you know I wanted her to be someone who was like very strong which I think you have to be to I've had the good luck to meet some real opera stars you know some big uh you know internationally known sopranos and and they do tend to be what I would call ass kickers. It's almost like you have to be to make it to that level as a performer. You know, you have to be a little bit crazy. And I think it's a good thing in a way. It's like, you know, I I forget how you just, you just said she was so crazy, right? Weird and crazy. And and I think there's a, there's an element, there's part of our society that is so opposed to like embracing the zaniness. I've always been someone who gravitates towards it. I think, which can be good and bad, because, I mean, I've had some crazy relationships that have been very hurtful, but then my favorite people also tend to be, you know, crazy. And and I think it's because I tend to be very straight-laced and sort of Midwestern and polite that I sort of project my own desire to be crazy onto these other people around me, and I'm like sweet go for it (laughs) so you know I'm always like I'm always like the guy in the background who's like egging someone on to do something crazy rather than do it myself because I'm uh, um so as a writer you know I can do that in the book you know like I can have Maria walk into a rehearsal room and basically have sex with with some guy What's that? Yeah, but I, I did want to comment that I liked that um, the characters, when they were growing up, the authority figures in their lives were always, they really wanted to follow a passion, and every authority figure just had to, they told them that they had to, like, um, just continue on with school they shouldn't ask too many questions. It was v- very much like interesting that you're so attracted to the zany component, and it's and it seemed with these characters it was coming from that sort of oppressed feeling constantly there and lack of explanation. Even with um, Lucian, I'm always afraid yeah, to say, his, and his father, who was a really supportive person, but with the schooling component, he was still, he very much never gave him an explanation. He just said he had to continue on with school. Right. And so I just wanted to comment on that from, you know, everyone, maybe this zit, where this zany component, because I love, since you said that word, where is it being like birthed from? Right. I think. One of the things in our culture right now is that we are in this era where a lot of us, especially those of us who work in sort of, you know, corporate offices, but have artistic interests, you know, it's, to me, it's very interesting how we reconcile the, you know, I think every artist is a little bit crazy, you know, or anyone who wants to be an artist. It's like you have to understand what that means to be um, 
a little unhinged. Otherwise, you're never going to get anywhere, I think, with your art. But at the same time, it's not like it was in the 60s when you could just, like, you know, rent an apartment in the West Village for, you know, $8 a month or something. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys read Patti Smith, her memoir, Just Kids, but she comes to New York and literally, before I say anything, let me just say I love the memoir, <laughs> but she comes to New York and sort of like floats around and, you know, gets by like sleeping in parks or whatever, and someone gives her a meal and, you know, she, you just you read that and you're like these days <laughs> it would not happen you know it's just it's inconceivable the life she led that something like that could happen now so i think i wanted to really capture the sort of the ambivalence we feel as artists about being in the modern sort of working world and want like which we need to do to survive right we have to pay the bills but also wanting to somehow access the art. And often it's the authority figures who are encouraging us to, to, to pay the bills. So does that, I don't know if that gets to it at all. So how, how did you do it? Because you have a full-time job here at Oxford. How did you manage to write? Oh. <laughs> um, a lot of evenings and weekends. So whatever. <laughs> That's a good note to end on. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you all, and thanks to Oxford University Press. Um, this is a great company, and it it really is. It's it's. There's so many fun people who work here, and it's really been uh, a treat for me to have to meet so many people and have you guys um, be interested in the book and uh, have kind things to say. So th thank you all. Should we look for another novel soon? Um, evenings and weekends, I'm, I'm working on something. I have a draft that's actually already longer than this, but it needs a lot of work. So um, fingers crossed. <laughs>